We want to acknowledge that Carleton University and the other locations where we make this podcast are on traditional, unceded Algonquin territory. Hi everyone, welcome to The Department Podcast. I'm Billy Flynn and along with Phil Primo, we're now on episode three of our Storytime Special Edition programs. Hopefully it might provide some brief or distracting fun for the kids and adults that might be listening. Uh, We hope you enjoyed the last episode, uh, the last two episodes actually. And for this episode, we're going to continue to read some more stories uh, from a variety of different authors. Uh, thank you to everyone for sending in your requests and recommendations, uh, some of which will feature on this episode. Uh, and if you or your kids have any stories, short books, poems uh, that you'd like to hear read aloud by one of us, then let us know and we'd be happy to give it a shot. Uh, send us an email at departmentpodcast.ca or you can connect with us on Twitter at departmentpod or just email us to our own email accounts too if you know us. Fox in Socks by Dr. Zeus. Fox, Socks, Box, Knox. Knox in Box, Fox in Socks. Knox on Fox, in Socks in Box. Socks on Knox and Knox in Box. Fox in Socks, on Box, on Knox. Chicks with bricks come, chicks with blocks come, chicks with bricks and blocks and clocks come. Look, sir, look, sir, Mr. Knox, sir. Let's do tricks with bricks and blocks, sir. Let's do tricks with chicks and clocks, sir. First, I'll make a quick trick brick stack. Then I'll make a quick trick block stack. You can make a quick trick chick stack. You can make a quick trick clock stack. And here's a new trick, Mr. Knox. Socks on chicks and chicks on fox. Fox on clocks on bricks on blocks. Bricks and blocks on knocks on box. Now we come to ticks and tocks, sir. Try to say this, Mr. Knox, sir. Clocks on fox tick, clocks on knox talk, six, six, bricks tick, six, six, chicks talk. Please, sir, I don't like this trick, sir. My tongue isn't quick or slick, sir. I get all those ticks and clocks, sir, mixed up with those chicks and tocks, sir. I can't do it, Mr. Fox, sir. I'm so sorry, Mr. Knox, sir. Here's an easy game to play. Here's an easy thing to say. New socks, two socks. Whose socks? Sue's socks. Who sews? Whose socks? Sue sews? Sue socks? Who sees? Who sew? Whose new socks, sir? You see, Sue sew. Sue's new socks, sir. That's not easy, Mr. Fox, sir. Who comes? Crow comes. Slow Joe Crow comes. Who sews? Crow's clothes. Sue sews? Crow's clothes. Slow Joe Crow sews? Whose clothes? Sue's clothes. Sue sews socks of fox and socks now. Slow Joe Crow sews knocks and box now. Sue sews rose on Slow Joe Crow's clothes. Fox sews hose on Slow Joe Crow's nose. Hose goes, rose grows. Nose hose goes some. Crow's rose grows some. Mr. Fox, I hate this game, sir. This game makes my tongue quite lame, sir. Mr. Knox, sir. What a shame, sir. We'll find something new to do now. Here is lots of new blue goo now. New goo, 
blue goo, gooey gooey. Blue goo, new goo, gluey gluey. Gooey goo for chewy chewing. That's what the goo goose is doing. Do you choose to chew goo too, sir? If sir, you sir, choose to chew sir with the goo goose, chew sir, do sir. Mr. Fox, sir, I won't do it, I can't do it, I won't chew it. Very well, sir, step this way, we'll find another game to play. So the book I'm going to read for today is another Dr. Zeus book, and it's called There's a Wocket in My Pocket. Did you ever have the feeling there's a zamp in the lamp? Or a nink in the sink? Or a wasset in the closet? Sometimes I'm quite certain there's a jerton in the curtain. And when I hear a talk, I know a zock's behind a clock. And that zelf up on that shelf. I've talked to her myself. I like the zabel on the table and the gear beneath the chair. But the bofa on the sofa acts as if he doesn't care. I like the geeling on the ceiling and the zower in the shower and the nupperts in the cupboards. I do like them a lot. But that nooth crush on my toothbrush. Well, some are nice, but he is not. The eps on the steps are always fun to have around, and so are many, many other friends I have found. Like the teller and the neller and the geller and the deller and the beller and the weller and the zeller and the seller. The end. Our next story is called The Traveler by Ray Bradbury. Father looked into Cece's room just before dawn. She laid upon her bed. He shook his head uncomprehendingly and waved at her. Now, If you can tell me what good she does lying there, he said, I'll eat the crepe on my mahogany box, sleeping all night, eating breakfast, and then lying on top of her bed all day. Oh, but she's so helpful, explained her mother, leading him down the hall away from Cece's slumbering pale figure. Why, she's one of the most adjustable members of the family. What good are your brothers? Most of them sleep all day and do nothing. At least Cece is active. They went downstairs through the scent of black candles, the black crepe on the banister left over from the homecoming some months ago, and untouched, whispering as they passed. Father unloosened his tie, exhaustedly. Well, we work nights, he said. Can we help it if we're, as you put it, old-fashioned? Of course not. Everyone in the family can be modern. She opened the cellar door, and they moved down into darkness arm in arm, She looked over at his round, white face, smiling. It's really very lucky I don't have to sleep at all. If you were married to a night sleeper, think what a marriage it would be. Each of us to our own, none of us the same, all wild. Sometimes we get one like Cece, all mind. And then there are those like Uncle Yiner, all wing. And then again, we have one like Timothy, all even and calm and normal. Then there's you sleeping days, and me, awake all and all my life. So Cece shouldn't be too much for you to understand. She helps me a million ways each day. She sends her mind down to the greengrocers for me to see what he sells. She puts her mind inside the butcher. That saves me a long trip if he's fresh out of good cuts. She warns me when gossips are coming to visit and talk away the afternoon. And well, there are 600 other things. They paused in the cellar near a large, empty mahogany box. He settled himself into it, still not convinced. 
But if she'd only contribute more, he said, I'm afraid I'll have to ask her to find some sort of work. Sleep on it, she said to him. Think it over. You may change your mind by sunset. She was closing the lid down on him. Well, he said thoughtfully, the lid closed. Good morning, dear, she said. Good morning, he said, muffled and closed within the box. The sun rose. She hurried upstairs to make breakfast. Cece Elliot was the one who traveled. She seemed an ordinary 18-year-old girl, but then none of the family looked like what they were. There was not of the fang, the foal, the worm, or the wind witch to them. They lived in small towns on farms across the world, simply, closely, realigning and adapting their talents to the demands and laws of a changing world. Cece Elliot awoke. She glided down through the house, humming, Good morning, mother. She walked down to the cellar to recheck each of the large mahogany boxes, to dust them, to be certain each was tightly sealed. Father, she said, polishing one box. Cousin Esther, she said, examining another, here on a visit. And, she rapped at a third, Grandfather Elliot. There was a rustle inside like a piece of papyrus. It's a strange crossbred family, she mused, climbing to the kitchen again. Night siphoners and flume fears, some awake like mother, 25 hours out of 24, some asleep like me, 59 minutes out of 60. Different species of sleep. She ate breakfast. In the middle of her apricot dish, she saw her mother's stare. She laid the spoon down. Cece said, father'll change his mind. I'll show him how fine I can be to have around. I'm family insurance. He doesn't understand. You wait. Mother said, you were inside me a while ago when I argued with father. Yes. I thought I felt you looking out in my eyes. The mother nodded. Cece finished and went up to bed. She folded down the blankets and clean, cool sheets, then laid herself out atop the covers, shut her eyes, rested her thin white fingers on her small bosom, nodded her slight, exquisitely sculpted head back against her thick gathering of chestnut hair. She started to travel. Her mind slipped from the room, over the flowered yard, the fields, the green hills, over the ancient drowsy streets of Melontown, into the wind and past the moist depression of the ravine. All day she would fly and meander. Her mind would pop into dogs, sit there, and she would feel the bristly feels of dogs, taste ripe bones, sniff tangy urine trees. She'd hear as a dog heard. She forgot human construction completely. She'd have a dog frame. It was more than telepathy. Up one flew and down another. This was complete separation from one body environment into another. It was entranced into tree-nozzling dogs, men, old maids, birds, children at hopscotch, lovers on their morning beds, into workers a sweat with shoveling, into unborn babies' pink, dream-small brains. Where would she go today? She made her decision and went. When her mother tiptoed a moment later to peek into the room, she saw Cece's body on the bed, the chest not moving, the face quiet. Cece was gone already. Mother nodded and smiled. The morning passed. Leonard, Byan, and Sam went off to their work, as did Laura, the manicuring sister, and Timothy was dispatched to school. The house quieted. 
At noontime, the only sound was made by Cece Elliott's three young girl cousins playing tisket-tasket coffin casket in the backyard. There were always extra cousins or uncles or grandnephews and night nieces about the place. They came and went, water out a tap down a drain. The cousins stopped their play when the tall, loud man banged on the front door and marched straight in when Mother answered. That was Uncle John, said the little girls, breathless. The one we hate? asked the second. What's he want? cried the third. He looked mad. We're mad at him, that's what, explained the second proudly, for what he did to the family sixty years ago and seventy years ago and twenty years ago. Listen. They listened. He's run upstairs. Sounds like he's crying. Do grown-ups cry? Sure, silly. He's in Cece's room, shouting, laughing, praying, crying. He sounds mad and sad and fadely cat altogether. The littlest one made tears herself. She ran to the cellar door. Wake up. Oh, down there, wake up. You in the boxes. Uncle John's here and he might have a cedar steak with him. I don't want a cedar steak in my chest. Wake up. Shh, hissed the biggest girl. He hasn't a stake. You can't wake the boxed people anyhow. Listen. Their heads tilted. Their eyes glistened upward, waiting. Get off the bed, commanded Mother in the doorway. Uncle John bent over Cece's slumbering body. His lips were misshaped. There was a wild, fey, and maddened focus in his green eyes. Am I too late? He demanded hoarsely, sobbing. Is she gone? Hours ago, Mother snapped. Are you blind? She might not be back for days. Sometimes she lies there a week. I don't have to feed the body. She finds sustenance from wherever, whoever she's in. Get away from her. Uncle John stiffened. One knee pressed on the springs. Why couldn't she wait? He wanted to know, frantically looking at her, his hands feeling her silent pulse again and again. You heard me. Mother moved forward curtly. She's not to be touched. She's got to be left as she is. So if she comes home, she can get back in her body exactly right. Uncle John turned his head. His long, hard, red face was pocketed and senseless. Deep black grooves crowded the tired eyes. Where'd she go? I've got to find her. Mother talked like a slap in the face. I don't know. She has favorite places. You might find her in a child running along a trail in the ravine or swinging on a grapevine. Or you might find her in a crayfish under a rock in the creek, looking up at you. She might be playing chess inside an old man in the courthouse square. You know as well as I, she can be anywhere. A wry look came over Mother's mouth. She might be vertical inside me now, looking out at you, laughing, not telling you. This might be her talking and having fun, and you wouldn't know it. Why, he swung heavily around like a huge pivoted boulder. His hands came up, wanting to grab something, if I thought. Mother talked on, casually, quietly. Of course she's not in me here. And if she was, there'd be no way to tell. Her eyes gleamed with a delicate malice. She stood tall and graceful, looking upon him with no fear. Now, suppose you explain what you want with her. He seemed to be listening to a distant bell tolling. He shook his head angrily to clear it. Then he growled, something inside me he broke off. He leaned over the cold, sleepy body. Cece, come back, you hear? You can come back if you want. The wind blew softly through the high willows outside the sun-drifted windows. The bed creaked under his shifted weight 
The distant bell tolled again and he was listening to it, but mother could not hear it. Only he heard the drowsy summer day sounds of it far, far away. His mouth opened obscurely. I have a thing for her to do to me. For the past month, I've been kind of going insane. I get funny thoughts. I was going to take a train to the big city and talk to a psychiatrist, but he wouldn't help. I know that Cece can enter my head and exercise those fears I have. She can suck them out like a vacuum cleaner if she wants to help me. She's the only one who can scrape away the filth and cobwebs and make me new again. That's why I need her, you understand? He said in a tight, expectant voice. He licked his lips. She's got to help me. After all you've done to the family, said Mother, I did nothing to the family. The story goes, said Mother, that in bad times when you needed money, you were paid $100 for each of the family you pointed out to the law to be staked through the heart. That's unfair, he said, wavering like a man hit in the stomach. You can't prove that. You lie. Nevertheless, I don't think Cece'd want to help you. The family wouldn't want it. Family, family, he stopped the floor like a huge, brutal child. Damn the family. I won't go insane on their account. I need help, goddammit, and I'll get it. Mother faced him, her face reserved, her hands crossed over her bosom. He lowered his voice, looking at her with a kind of evil shyness, not meeting her eyes. Listen to me, Miss Elliot, he said. And you too, Cece, he said to the sleeper. If you're there, he added, listen to this. He looked at the wall clock ticking on the far sun-drenched wall. If Cece isn't back here by six o'clock tonight, ready to help clean out my mind and make me sane, I'll... I'll go to the police. He drew himself up. I've got a list of Elliots who live on farms all around and inside Mellontown. The police can cut enough new cedar stakes in an hour to drive through a dozen Elliot hearts. He stopped, wiped the sweat off his face. He stood, listening. The distant bell began to toll again. He had heard it for days. There was no bell, but he could hear it ringing. It rang now, near, far, close, away. Nobody else could hear it, save himself. He shook his head. He shouted to cover the sound of those bells, shouted at Miss Elliot, you heard me. He hitched up his trousers, tightened the buckle clasp with a jerk, walked past Mother to the door. Yes, she said, I heard, but even I can't call Cece back if she doesn't want to come. She'll arrive eventually, be patient. Don't go running off to police, I'll cut her. I can't wait. This thing of mine, this noise in my head's gone on for eight weeks now. I can't stand it much longer. He scowled at the clock. I'm going. I'll try to find Cece in town. If I don't get her by six, well, you know what a cedar steak's like. His heavy shoes pounded away down the hall, fading down the stairs out of the house. When the noises were all gone, the mother turned and looked earnestly, painfully down upon the sleeper. Cece, she called softly, insistently. Cece, come home. There was no word from the body. Cece laid there, not moving, for as long as her mother waited. Uncle John walked through the fresh open country and into the streets of Mellontown, looking for Cece and every child that licked an ice pop, and every little white dog that padded by on its way some eagerly anticipated nowhere. The town spread out like a fancy graveyard, nothing more than a few monuments, really, edifices to lost arts and pastimes. It was a great meadow of elms and deodars and hackamatack trees. 
laid out with wooden walks you could haul into your barn at night if the hollow sound of walking people irked you. There were tall old maiden houses, lean and narrow and wisely wan, in which were spectacles of colored glass, upon which the thin golden hair of age-old bird nests sprouted. There was a drug shop full of quaint wire-rung soda fountain stools with plywood bottoms, and the memories clear sharp odor that used to be in a drug stores, but never isn't anymore. There was a barber emporium with a red-ribboned pillar twisting around inside a chrysalis of glass in front of it. And there was a grocery that was all fruity shadow and dusty boxes, the smell of an old Arminian woman, which was like the odor of a rusty penny. The town lay under the deodor and mellow-leaf trees in no hurry, and somewhere in the town was Cece, the one who traveled. Uncle John stopped, bought himself a bottle of orange crush, drank it, wiped his face with his handkerchief, his eyes jumping up and down like little kids skipping rope. I'm afraid, he thought. I'm afraid. He saw a coat of birds strung dot-dash on the high telephone wires. Was Cece up there laughing at him out of sharp bird's eyes, shuffling her feathers, singing at him? He suspicioned the cigar store Indian, but there was no animation in that cold, carved, tobacco-brown image. Distantly, like on a sleepy Sunday morning, he heard the bells ringing in a valley of his head. He was stone blind. He stood in blackness. White, tortured faces drifted through his intern vision. Cece, he cried, to everything, everywhere. I know you can help me. Shake me like a tree. Cece, the blindness passed. He was bathed in a cold sweating that didn't stop, but ran like a syrup. I know you can help, he said. I saw you help Cousin Marianne years ago, ten years ago, wasn't it? He stood, concentrating. Marianne had been a girl shy as a mole, her hair twisted like roots on her round ball of a head. Marianne had hung in her skirt like a clapper at a bell, never ringing when she walked, just swithering along one heel after another. She gazed at weeds like the sidewalk under her toes. She looked at your chin if she saw you at all, and never got as far as your eyes. Her mother despaired of Marianne's ever marrying. It was up to Cece then. Cece went into Marianne like fist into glove. Marianne jumped, ran, yelled, glinted her yellow eyes. Marianne flickered her skirts, unbraided her hair, and let it hang in a shimmery veil on her half-nude shoulders. Marianne giggled and ran like a gay clapper in the tolling bell of her dress. Marianne squeezed her face into many attitudes of coyness, merriment, intelligence, maternal bliss, and love. The boys raced after Marianne. Marianne got married. Cece withdrew. Marianne had hysterics. Her spine was gone. She lay like a limp corset all one day, but the habit was in her now. Some of Cece had stayed on like a fossil imprint on soft shale rock and Marianne began tracing the habits and thinking them over and remembering what it was like to have Cece inside her. And pretty soon, she was running and shouting and giggling all by herself. A corset animated, as it were, by memory. Marianne had lived joyously thereafter. Standing with the cigar store Indian for conversation, Uncle John now shook his head violently. Dozens of bright bubbles floated in his eyeballs, each with tiny, slanted, microscopic eyes staring in, in at his brain. 
What if he never found Cece? What if the plain winds had borne her all the way to Elgin? Wasn't that where she dearly loved to bide her time in the asylum for the insane, touching their minds, holding, and turning their confetti thoughts? Far flung in the afternoon distance, a great metal whistle sighed and echoed. Steam shuffled as a train cut across valley trestles, over cool rivers, through ripe cornfields, into tunnels like finger into thimble, over arches of shimmering walnut trees. John stood afraid. What if Cece was in the cabin of the engineer's head? now. She loved riding the monster engines across country far as she could stretch the contact. Yank the whistle rope until it screamed across sleeping nightland or drowsy day country. He walked along a shady street. Out of the corners of his eyes, he thought he saw an old woman, wrinkled as a dry fig, naked as a thistle seed, floating among the branches of a hawthorn tree, a cedar stake driven into her breast. Somebody screamed. Something thumped in his head. A blackbird soaring skyward took a lock of his hair with it. He shook his fist at the bird. Heaved a rock. Scare me, will ya? He yelled. Breathing rawly, he saw the bird circle behind him to sit on a limb waiting another chance to dive for hair. He turned slyly from the bird. He heard the withering sound. He jumped about. Grabbed up. Cece. He had the bird. It fluttered, squalled in his hands. Cece, he called, looking into his caged fingers at the wild black creature. The bird drew blood with its bill. Cece, I'll crush you if you don't help me. The bird shrieked and cut him. He closed his fingers tight, tight, tight. He walked away from where he finally dropped the dead bird and did not look back at it, even once. He walked down into the ravine that ran through the very center of Melontown. What's happening now, he wondered. Has Cece's mother phoned people? Are the Elliots afraid? He swayed drunkenly, great lakes of sweat bursting out under his armpits. Well, let them be afraid a while. He was tired of being afraid. He'd look just a little longer for Cece, and then go to the police. On the creek bank, he laughed to think of the Elliots scurrying madly, trying to find some way around him. There was no way. They'd have to make Cece help him. They couldn't afford to let good old Uncle John die insane. No, sir. BB shot eyes lay deep in the water, staring roundly up at him. On blazingly hot summer noons, Cece had often entered into the soft-shelled grayness of the mandibled heads of crayfish. She had often peeked out from the black egg eyes upon their sensitive filamentary stalks and felt the creek sluice by her, steadily, and in fluid veils of coolness and captured light, breathing out and in the particles of stuff that floated in water, holding her horny, lynched claws before her like some elegant salad utensils, swollen and scissor-sharp. She watched the giant strides of boy feet progressing towards her through the creek bottom, heard the faint, watered, thickened shout of boys searching for crayfish, jabbing their pale fingers down, tumbling, rocks aside, clutching and tossing frantic, flippery animals into open metal cans where scores of other crayfish scuttled like a basket of waste paper come to life. She watched pale stalks of boy legs poise over her rock, saw the nude loin shadows of boy thrown on the sandy muck of the creek floor, saw the suspenseful hand hovered, heard the suggestive whisper of a boy who'd spied a prize beneath a stone, 
Then, as the hand plunged, the stone rolled, Cece flirted the borrowed fan of her inhabited body, kicked back in a little sand explosion and vanished downstream. Onto another rock she went to sit fanning the sand, holding her claws before her, proud of them, her tiny glass bulb eyes glowing back as creek water filled her bubbling mouth, cool, cool, cool. The realization that Cece might be this close at hand in any live thing drove Uncle John to a mad fury. In any squirrel or chipmunk, in a diseased germ even, on this aching body Cece might be existing. She could even enter amoebas. On some sweltering summer noons, Cece would live in an amoeba, darting, vacillating, deep in the old, tired, philosophical dark waters of a kitchen well. On days when the world high over her, above the unstirred water, was a dreaming nightmare of heat printed on each object of the land, she'd lie somnolent, quivering and cool and distant, settling in the well throat. Up above trees were like images burned in green fire. Birds were like bronze stamps you inked and punched on your brain. Houses steamed like manure sheds. When a door slammed, it was like a rifle shot. The only good sound on a simmering day was the asthmatic suction of well water drawn up into a porcelain cup, there to be inhaled through an old, skeletonous woman's porcelain teeth. Overhead, Cece could hear the brittle clap of the old woman's shoes, the sighing voice of the old woman baked in the August sun, and, lying lowermost and cool, sighting up through the dim echoing tunnel of well, Cece heard the iron suction of the pump handle pressed energetically by the sweating old lady, and water, amoeba, Cece, and all rose up the throat of the well in sudden cool disgorging out into the cup over which waited sun-withered lips. Then, and only then, did Cece withdraw, just as the lips came down to sip the cup tilted and porcelain met porcelain. John stumbled, fell flat into the creek water. He didn't rise, but sat dripping stupidly. Then he began crashing rocks over, shouting, seizing upon, and losing crayfish, cursing. The bell rang louder in his ears. And now, one by one, a procession of bodies that couldn't exist but seemed to be real floated by on the water. Warm white bodies turned on their backs, drifting like loose marionettes. As they passed, the tide bobbed their heads so their faces rolled over, revealing the features of the typical Elliot family member. He began to weep, sitting there in the water. He had wanted Cece's help, but now how could he expect to deserve it, acting a fool, cursing her, hating her, threatening her family and the family? He stood up, shaking himself. He walked out the creek and up the hill. There was only one thing to do. Plead with individual members of the family. Ask them to intercede for him. Have them ask Cece to come home, quickly. In the undertaking parlor on Court Street, the door opened. The undertaker, a short, well-tensored man with mustache and sensitively thin hands, looked up. His face fell. Oh, it's you, Uncle John, he said. Nephew Byan, said John, still wet from the creek. I need your help. Have you seen Cece? Seen her, said Byan Elliot. He leaned against the marble table where he was working on a body. He laughed. God, don't ask me that, he snorted. Look at me close. Do you know me? John bristled. You're Byan Elliot, Cece's brother, of course. Wrong, 
The undertaker shook his head. I'm cousin Ralph, the butcher. Yes, the butcher. He tapped his head. Here, inside, where it counts, I'm Ralph. I was working my refrigerator a moment ago at the butcher shop when suddenly Cece was inside me. She borrowed my mind like a cup of sugar and brought me over here just now and sitted me down into Bayan's body. Poor Bayan. What a joke. You're... you're not Bayan? No, 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 dear Uncle John. Cece probably put Bayan in my body. You see the joke? A meat cutter exchanged for a meat cutter. A dealer in cold cuts traded for another of the same. He quaked with laughter. Ah, that's Cece. What a child. He wiped happy tears from his face. I've stood here for five minutes wondering what to do. You know something? Undertaking isn't hard. Not much harder than fixing pot roasts. Oh, Bayan will be mad. His professional integrity. Cece probably will trade us back. Later. Bayan never was the one to take a joke on himself. John looked confused. Even you can't control Cece? God, no. She does what she wants. We're helpless. John wandered towards the door. Got to find her somehow, he mumbled. If she can do this to you, think how she'd help me if she wanted. The bells rang louder in his ears. From the side of his eyes, he saw a movement. He whirled and gasped. The body on the table had a cedar stake driven through it. So long, said the undertaker to the slammed door. He listened to the sound of John's running feet, fading. The man who staggered into the police station at five that afternoon was barely able to stand up. His voice was a whisper, and he retched as if he'd taken poison. He didn't look like Uncle John anymore. The bells rang all the time, all the time, and he saw people walking behind him with staked chests who vanished whenever he turned to look. The sheriff looked up from reading a magazine wiped his brown mustache with the back of one claw-like hand, took his feet down off a battered desk and waited for Uncle John to speak. I want to report a family that lives here, whispered Uncle John, his eyes half shut. A wicked family, living under false pretenses. The sheriff cleared his throat. What's the family name? Uncle John stopped. What? The sheriff repeated it. What's the family name? Your voice, said John. What about my voice, said the sheriff. Sounds familiar, said John. Like who? asked the sheriff. Like Cece's mother. That's who you sound like. Do I? asked the sheriff. That's who you're inside. Cece changed you too. Like she changed Ralph and Bayan. I can't report the family to you now, then. It wouldn't do any good. Guess it wouldn't, remarked the sheriff implacably. The family's gotten around me, wailed Uncle John. Seems that way, said the sheriff, wetting a pencil on his tongue, starting a fresh crossword puzzle. Well, good day to you, John Elliot. Uh, I said a good day. Good day, John stood by the desk listening. Do you, do you hear anything? The sheriff listened. Crickets? No. Frogs? No, said Uncle John. Bells, just bells. Holy church bells, the kind of bells a man like me can't stand to hear. Holy church bells. The sheriff listened. No, can't say as I hear him. Say, be careful on that door there. It slams. The door to Cece's room was knocked open. A moment later, Uncle John was inside, moving across the floor. The silent body of Cece laid on the bed, not moving. Behind him, as John seized Cece's hand, her mother appeared. She ran to him, struck him on the head and shoulders till he fell back from Cece. 
The world swelled with bell sounds. His vision blacked out. He groped at the mother, biting his lips, releasing them in gasps, eyes streaming. Please, please tell her to come back, he said. I'm sorry, I don't want to hurt anyone anymore. The mother shouted through the clamor of bells, go downstairs and wait for her there. I can't hear you, he cried louder. My head, he held his hands to his ears. So loud, so loud, I can't stand it. He rocked on his heels. If only I knew where Cece was. Quite simply, he drew out a folded pocket knife, unfolded it. I can't go on, he said. And before the mother moved, he fell to the floor, the knife in his heart. Blood running from his lips, his shoes looked senseless one atop the other, one eye shut, the other wide and white. The mother bent down to him. Dead, she whispered. Finally. So, she murmured, unbelievingly rising up, stepping away from the blood. So he's dead at last. She glanced around, fearfully cried aloud. Cece, Cece, come home, child, I need you. A silence, while sunlight faded from the room. Cece, come home, child. The dead man's lips moved. A higher, clear voice sprang from them. Here, I've been here for days. I'm the fear he had in him, and he never guessed. Tell father what I've done. Maybe he'll think me worthy now. The dead man's lips stopped. A moment later, Cece's body on the bed stiffened like a stocking with a leg thrust suddenly into it. Inhabited once again. Supper, mother, said Cece, rising from the bed. So that's it for this episode, everyone. Uh, hope you enjoyed it, and thanks for tuning in for another special storytime edition of the Department Podcast. Uh, if you have any recommendations or uh, requests, you can send us an email at departmentpodcast.ca. Uh, you can also connect with us on Twitter at departmentpod, or just email us through our own uh, individual email accounts as well. So uh, stay safe, everyone, and uh, we'll be bringing you more stories next time around. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.